everyone. Welcome to the podcast of the Vineyard Church, Chester Springs. We invite you to join our mission to love like Jesus, and you can connect with us on social media or visit our website, csvineyard.org. Now for this week's talk, brought to you by co-lead pastor, Amos Grunendijk. Uh, why don't you guys open up to Luke chapter 8, if you brought your Bibles. Good job. If you didn't bring your Bibles, there are Bibles in the back by the giving baskets and the four corners boxes. And while you're back there, or if you didn't notice on your way in, we're taking communion during the worship set. So you will want one of these at some point. And there's, I think there's some on that same table with the giving baskets. And if not, there's definitely more out in the lobby. Um, As you turn to Luke chapter 8, I invited the church to read through the entire book of Luke last month. How'd it go? Some people, yes. Some people tried. Some people forgot totally. That's okay. Uh, Why do I ask you to read the book of Luke? It's because Jesus is the center of everything we do at this church. We have people in this room who come from very different places, but we come here because Jesus is the center. Not only is Jesus the center of this church, but Jesus, if you're a follower of him, should be the center of every single thing you do in life. And so if you want to know what Jesus is like, how Jesus treats people, what Jesus teaches, you want to have this bank of stories about Jesus, and Luke is full of those stories, this month. I'm inviting you to read the book of John. There are fewer chapters in the book of John, so you only have to read a chapter a day on weekdays (laughs) or use the weekends to catch up. But it's uh, a lot of the stories that come to us in the book of John are different than the stories that come to us from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And what I want to start out today actually by sharing with you is something I noticed reading through the book of Luke that I'd never noticed before, before we dive into the, the text that I selected today. I was reading through Luke chapter 8, and I thought, why have I never saw this, seen this? Why have I never heard this? And this may be just old news to you, but uh, Luke chapter 8, verse 1, it says, Soon afterward, Jesus began a tour of the nearby towns and villages, preaching and announcing the good news about the kingdom of God. He took his 12 disciples with him. Now, that's all normal. This next part is what caught me along with some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Among them were Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons, Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's business manager. This is the Herod who at one point is trying to kill Jesus. Herod's chief of staff, who was female, begins following Jesus. It goes on, Susanna is another example of a woman who's following Jesus with these 12 disciples and many others, talking about women, who were contributing from their own resources to support Jesus and his disciples. So first thing to notice is that it was typical for women to sit and listen to rabbis in the first century. What is virtually unheard of is that women would never uproot their life and follow the rabbi from town to town. Do you see what's happening here? Women are following Jesus in the same way those 12 disciples 
follow Jesus. Jesus is treating them as if they're totally on the same plane. He's teaching them the same things. He's expecting from them the same sorts of life and activity and ministry as the 12 dudes. Somehow the church forgot that. I think perhaps it's because the church, like the Pharisees, began to build structures around who could and who couldn't do certain things, who was considered valuable or holy and who wasn't. I don't know what happened in Christian culture that we forgot the prominent role of women in the New Testament. Did, it, did anyone else know that? Maybe I'm just dense, okay? These women are following Jesus around just as the disciples. Here's the other real kicker. Who's paying the bills? Where did we get the idea that women should only serve in the home? And again, that is an honored place. I'm not saying that it's anything but. Like to raise children, that is work. But to put a ceiling on what women can and cannot do, it doesn't take long before the church forgets what Jesus was doing and its incredibly radical nature. This is a corrective to the culture, to the religious institution of that day. And I don't, I don't, are we there yet? We're not there yet. It's a corrective for us still. So today, for the rest of the time, this is just going to be kind of a hard transition. We're going to be looking at Luke 15. It's not totally out of left field because Jesus is once again in this context, speaking to Pharisees, uh, and these Pharisees have missed the point. But before we like take an in-depth look at Luke 15, we've been watching the Chosen TV series together. I know some of you had seen it before I brought it up. Some of you are re-watching. Some of you are watching for the first time. Um, here's a little clip from that series, and I would invite everybody to just continue to watch two episodes a week. But let's show the clip. Because we know that God pursues the sick more than the healthy. Think of it this way. Are there any sheep herders in the crowd? I am. Ah, welcome. We are honored you are here. I have a very warm place in my heart for shepherds. Who is tending your flock now? My brother. We're taking turns. How many sheep? One hundred, teacher. Say one of them goes astray. What do you do? I'd go look for it, of course. Of course. But what about the other 99? I'd have to leave them behind. I can't lose the one sheep. Hmm. And if you find it? I'd lay it over my shoulders and bring it home. And I would probably do a little dance. <laughs> <laughs> and what would you say to your friends who are worried for you? Rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. Do you see what he just said there? He rejoices more for one sheep than over the 99 who never went astray. So it is not the will of my father that one of these should perish. In the same way, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Look at them. I couldn't tell Jew from Samaritan the way they're listening.
Okay, now before we read Luke 15, I want to put up a slide here. There's some rabbinical writings that you can find that trace back to near the time of Jesus, uh, where they talk about joy in heaven. So these are most likely Pharisees who are writing. The Pharisees say there is joy in heaven when, first of all, irritating people were vanquished. I kind of like that one. Sorry, I repent. Uh, Two, the wicked are crushed. And three, the godless are condemned. These are rabbis uh, around the time of Jesus. So let's read Jesus' parable again from Luke chapter 15. It says, Tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law complain. Okay, this little word complain, maybe circle it. Um, The word here is connected to a word we find in Exodus and Numbers, where we talked about this a few weeks ago. The people wandering through the wilderness always start to, kind of the literal word is murmur, 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 complain. In Exodus, they're complaining primarily against God. It's like ingratitude, distrust. Here we have the Pharisees murmuring against Jesus. He says, or they say, they're murmuring because he, Jesus, was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. So Jesus told them this story. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go to search for the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. When he arrives, he will call together his friends and neighbors and say, rejoice with me because I have found my lost sheep. In the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others in the where? Wilderness. And when he finds the lost sheep, where does he take it? On his shoulders, and where does he go? Home. Where are the 99 sheep at the end of this story? They are still in the wilderness. They don't think they need saving. And so what's the word here? The Pharisees thought that they were righteous. They were proud of their behavior. They didn't think they needed any saving. They're the religious institution. They think they're fine, but they are the 99. And at the end of the story, they are still in the wilderness. They miss the party. The one who is lost, who knows it's lost, who knows it needs saving, the sinners, the tax collectors, the, the, those that the Pharisees have called unrighteous, they get brought home. 
They join in in the party. They participate in the joy of heaven. Guys, I've been, I've been really wrestling with the risk of Phariseeism in my own heart these last few weeks. And I think we all need to admit that we are at risk of becoming like the Pharisees ourselves. Why is that? In part because we're here, (laughs) because we're in church. And a lot of our best friends are also Christians, and so we can easily look around and think, oh, I'm doing pretty well. I'm in the right place. I'm saying the right things. I'm doing the right religious customs, practices. You know, I read the book of Luke. These are all good things, but the risk is, is that we forget that we still need saving. So you might, I'm just going to put this up. You might be a Pharisee if, number one, you spend more time judging lost sinners. Again, that's in quotes because this is the category that the Pharisees apply. The Pharisees, in fact, spend a lot of time trying to decide who's in the group and who's lost, who's a sinner. They spend a lot of time judging and identifying. And Jesus spends a lot of time eating with those very people that the religious institution pushes out. Number two, all your friends hold the same value set as you do. So the 99 sheep, they think they're fine because they're surrounded by other sheep. One sheep is like, bah, and the other sheep is like, bah, and whenever they look at each other, bah, 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 they're, you know, we're good. We're like, look at all these amazing sheep. Aren't we great? But they are stuck in the wilderness. We use the word echo chamber sometimes, like if you only get the input of the things you already believe and surround yourselves with people who are only like you, you can become convinced really quickly that you are the exclusive holder of all truth (laughs) and that you don't need saving. Number three, this is kind of where it's all driving. If you forget your need to repent, if you forget your need to return to Jesus, to put Jesus back at the center of your life. I don't think this is a one and done repentance. And I, I'm not saying like you're at risk of, you know, eternal peril if you kind of lose your way. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying the way that our hearts work And the way that culture beckons, we are bound to go astray. And so what I want to do is I actually just want to take a little pause here and invite the Holy Spirit to show us, perhaps, where we need to repent. In particular, of our Phariseeism of the propensity and of our, of our hearts to be self-righteous and to judge others. And so if maybe even open up your hands in a receptive posture and say, come Holy Spirit with me. Show me in my heart where I have had arrogant attitudes or judgmental words toward people. 
Show me where I have put something or someone else, even maybe a a theological doctrine in the center of my life instead of you. And now, agree with me or say these words in your heart. Jesus, I'm sorry. I want you in the center of my life. Help me. Amen. I want to reflect a little bit more on the sheep, and I'll talk then about the shepherd. Um, but a few, a few reflections on sheep. I have a few pictures that I want to show you. The first one is this. This is not a sheep. <laughs> but I'm curious if anyone under the age of 30 knows the name of this dog. Huh? Lassie. And what, does Lass, what is Lassie known for? Lassie helps, but when Lassie gets lost, what happens? Lassie comes home. Not so with sheep. Uh, When sheep get lost, they have no sense of how to find their way home. They are completely helpless. I have a few more pictures that I took in the Middle East around Jerusalem. This would have been, well, you can see in the background the Judean wilderness uh, this is a shepherd, and if a sheep is left to its own, it will not survive. Now, I'm not talking about like mountain sheep, those, sheeps, those sheep are fine, but domesticated sheep, there's no such thing as a, as a stray sheep, like you have a stray cat, because a sheep will get stuck in the bushes, will fall off a cliff, will get eaten by wolves. A sheep needs someone like her to lead them to green pastures, to protect them from wild animals, to make sure that they continue to survive and thrive. Here's another picture of sheep being kind of herded. You've heard like sheep are, sheep are followers. They follow typically the group, but not always. Because sheep, thirdly, see one thing in life, or the most important thing to a sheep is the grass in the ground. And in the Judean wilderness, it's not plentiful. It's mostly rock with these little patches of grass. And so what will happen, most likely when a sheep gets lost or gets itself into a dangerous place, is it'll eat some grass. The grass will be gone. It'll look ahead. Oh, more grass. It'll eat the grass. It'll look up, move toward grass, until suddenly it's in this place all alone, or maybe it's on the top of a cliff, and I don't know if you've ever climbed up something. Sometimes it's a lot that's real steep. It's harder to get down than it is to get up most often. And so one reflection I'd just like to make on our own spiritual life is it is easy to continually look for the thing that will fill our soul that is right in front of us. And we tend to build our life on something that will give us this quick kind of reward. So maybe it's love. Maybe you've made uh, this person that you're kind of attracted to the center of your life. Maybe you're married to this person. (laughs) But either this person breaks up with you or this person rejects you. Or maybe your spouse says something that just upsets you and what happens if that person is the source 
of your like spiritual nourishment, you melt down. You enter this emotional and spiritual depression from which it seems there will be no end. And you, you didn't necessarily do that on purpose. You just, your heart wandered off. But what will happen to every single thing that you go to for nourishment other than Jesus? Just like grass, suddenly it'll be gone. Doesn't matter money, sex, good looks, entertainment. There's a point where Netflix just isn't going to fill your heart anymore. And then what? You're lost. You're looking, now what's next? Well, maybe there's another clump of grass a little farther out. But suddenly this clump of grass has led you away from your shepherd. The second thing to note about sheep as we reflect about the spiritual life, uh, this quote comes from W. Philip Keller, who was a shepherd before he became a pastor. I believe he lived in like the Scotland area, certainly British. And I have a quote from him. A sheep is a stupid animal. Okay, so Jesus calls a sheep just not a compliment exactly. It loses its direction continually in a way a cat or dog never does. Remember Lassie? Even when you find a lost sheep, the lost sheep rushes to and fro and will not follow you home. So when you find it, you must seize it, throw it to the ground, tie its forelegs and hind legs together, and put it over your shoulders and carry it home. That's the only way to save a lost sheep. Pretty interesting, right? A sheep can do nothing to contribute to its own salvation. In fact, most sheep, when they are found, resist that salvation. And like many of us, when we're put in an anxious state, when a, when a sheep is lost and a shepherd, you know, like, oh, there's, there's the sheep. And the sheep says, oh, there's the shepherd. It, it feels anxious and it just gets a little frantic and it, it runs around or it runs away or it maybe, you know, starts to bleat really loud or complain or or resist the shepherd. And so what the shepherd does is uh, take the sheep and put the sheep over its shoulder. So finding the sheep does not mean that the work is done for the shepherd. Finding the sheep means now there's a long, grueling walk with this 50, 60, 70 pound animal on your shoulders. And the the sacrifice that the shepherd makes to bring that sheep home is significant. Guys, we, we cannot contribute <laughs> to our salvation, and we all need saving. It is an act of pure, undiluted grace. And when we forget that, we don't treat people with the same kind of grace. When we forget that we were saved purely based on the grace of God, we become our own kind of Pharisee. And so we begin to identify and judge and uh, criticize the, the behaviors and the lifestyles of others. And that would be bleak, except for the fact that the shepherd, who, again, don't, don't, be confused. The shepherd is representing Jesus or, or the pursuit of God toward us. Now, it's, it's not a terrible thing to try to emulate the heart of God as we pursue people, but, but Jesus here is identifying himself as the shepherd, the one who will go 
and do whatever it takes to bring the sheep where? Home. And this is where like all of heaven rejoices. Because it's not that, maybe one of your, some of your Bibles say, you know, the 99 sheeple <laughs> uh, say they have no need of repentance. Well, Jesus isn't saying there are people who don't need to repent and there are people who need to repent. He's saying there are people who need to repent and don't know it. And there are people who need to repent and know it. And when I pursue someone who doesn't think they're lost, they just, they're oblivious. When I pursue someone who knows that they need my help, even if they're at first resistant, they will come home with me. Because they know how much they need the shepherd. Let's jump to Psalm 23. Now, remember... Jesus would have had his entire Old Testament memorized all of these Pharisees that Jesus is talking to. Jesus takes turns, actually, in the book of Luke. Sometimes he's talking to the crowd. Sometimes he's talking to his disciples. It's worth noticing. In this case, he's, he's speaking to Pharisees. So all these guys know their Old Testament by heart. And in Psalm 23, you have this beautiful picture of God being not just any kind of shepherd, but a good shepherd. Many of you probably know this one, but I think it's worth reading in church every so often. And so let this, like wherever you're coming from, wherever, whether you're trying to repent of your Phariseeism or whether you're trying to repent of like just this genuine realization, like I'm lost, I've messed up, I'm not sure what purpose I have in my life. I, need, I actually need Jesus to give me those things. Let these words speak to your heart as a description of who Jesus is and what he wants for you. The Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. He lets me rest in green meadows. He leads me beside peaceful streams. He renews my strength. He guides me along right paths, bringing honor to his name. Even when I walk through the darkest valley, I will not be afraid, for you are close beside me. Your rod and your staff protect and comfort me. You prepare a feast for me in the presence of my enemies. You honor me by anointing my head with oil. My cup overflows with blessing. Surely your goodness and unfailing love will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will live in the house of the Lord forever because God will bring me home. And he does this because he pursues us, but he also does this in another way because, uh, as I said, the finding the sheep isn't the end of the story. There's a labor that the shepherd has to go through. And the labor that Jesus goes through, okay, I'm going to just insert some theology, Christology, which is basically theology about Jesus, okay? Jesus... Christians believe is the son of God, like the eternal son of God existed before and after he like comes down to earth. And so Jesus comes to us in order to be sacrificed as a lamb. He, th this is crazy. He's the shepherd, <laughs> but he takes on flesh. He actually becomes like one of his sheep. 
And here's one of the crazy things. We're going to take communion later, but I want to talk about communion. We celebrate communion because Jesus gathers together his closest friends, his followers, and he shares a Passover meal. Now, some of you uh, know your Old Testament pretty well. If you think back to what the Passover meal recollects, remembers, celebrates, it's the It's the exodus of God's people from Egypt to the promised land, but there's a bunch of wilderness in between. And so a couple of things. The first thing is they're going to leave in a hurry, right? So they make this unleavened bread, like flat bread, and they they do drink. They drink some wine, you know, for a good time. I don't know. Anyway, they drink wine. But the third thing is, is they kill a what? They kill a lamb and they take the blood and they put it on their doorposts. And that keeps, that, that signals to God, like, I'm going to pass over your house as I bring judgment on the Egyptians to bring about your salvation. Okay, so what do they do with the lamb on Passover night during the Exodus? What do they do with the lamb? Do you know? They eat it after they. They kill it. They put the blood on the thing. They don't sacrifice that lamb, actually, in this case. (laughs) They eat the lamb. So for, well, up until this very day, 3,000 years later, on Passover meal, you have lamb, unleavened bread, and wine. Jesus sits down with his disciples on the night that he is betrayed. What's missing? at the table. Well, nothing is missing because you have the unleavened bread, you have the wine, and you have the Lamb of God. Have you ever noticed that? As you read through the Last Supper, there is no lamb at the table because Jesus is at the table. And it is the night that he is betrayed that he will be killed so that his people, his followers, anybody who realizes that they need him might be saved from all that enslaves them. And the main thing, according to Jesus, that enslaves us is that sin that we need to repent of and that he wants to wash clean with his blood. That's kind of the, I know I use some maybe technical or like religious words there, but that's kind of the center of what Jesus came to do. That's like, you want to talk about the kingdom of God. It's the reconciliation, the recovery of people into relationship with God, that they might enter his presence and participate in the joy of heaven. We have a good shepherd and he will pursue you to the very ends of the earth. He wants to bring you home. Let's pray. Jesus, we recognize our need to repent, and maybe this is our first time. Maybe this is the first time we've really said, Jesus, I need help. I need you. I want you to be the center of our life. Or maybe it's because our hearts have, like, just been kind of misdirected for a time. We all have room 
to grow into your grace and into your life. And so come, Holy Spirit, and fill us with your presence. Help us to have a deeper understanding and experience of your grace today. We ask that wherever we're coming from, that you would meet us, that we would actually be able to feel that you are close, feel your pursuit. And so now as we stand and worship, we turn our hearts to you. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast of the Vineyard Church, Chester Springs. We hope you share this with your friends and family and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.